John's convicts put my guys out of work. Shame on you. <laughs> the presentation I have today is uh, a presentation in two parts. Uh, and it's basically a cause and effect. And so to understand why there was an effect, you got to know the cause. And so we're going to take a walk over some history that you're probably familiar with. And hopefully I will have included something that's new um, it, to the story. There is a train robbery, which in the time-honored tradition of Montana labor uh, unions and so forth, it's, it's, it's something that you did. When you got fired up, you stole a train. The other time-honored tradition in Montana was the presence of troops in Butte. Uh, 1994, 1914, 1917, 1920. So, you know, we do have some some things to fall back on that are traditional in Montana and, and Montana's labor movement. And that's essentially what this is about. So the first part of the story starts in Butte, the Gibraltar of Unionism. Uh, the first strike was in 1878 when the miners organized to support the unskilled miners who were getting a wage reduction. They were successful. They created the Butte Mine or the Butte Working Men's Union uh, that later became the Butte uh, Miners Union. It was an independent. It uh, didn't have a national or an international union that it was a part of or anything like that. It, it operated solely in Butte. Uh, things would begin to change in the 1890s, however, for that. 1893, you have the panic. Uh, you have Coxey's Army, which is the working men trooping to Washington, D.C. to protest uh, the conditions and the lack of jobs in, in the United States and to promote um, government infrastructure building to put men to work and so they, they can earn uh, wages. Uh, in, in, uh, there was a Montana contingent of that as well. It was called Hogan's Army, and they started off by stealing a train in Butte <laughs> and heading east. They got as far as Forsyth, and the federal troops stepped in and uh, arrested them and dispersed them. The interesting thing is they sent them to Helena. Some of them stood trial. They got done. What are we going to do with all these workers that don't have jobs or anything like that? I know. We'll send them to Fort Benton. So they sent them to Fort Benton with enough construction material to build rafts to float down the Missouri River to Washington, D.C. Um, word is, is at least one raft made it to St. Louis, um, but whether or not they made it all the way to D.C. is uncertain. Um, maybe one of our Fort Benton historians can fill us in on that. Uh, so you had that. You had the Coeur d'Alene uh, Mining District strike in 1894 would have a big impact on the West and, and the mining culture in the West. Uh, because the mine owners were able to go through and systematically pick off these small local unions um, because they didn't support one another. They supported the union within their community and within the mine that they worked. So this spurred on an idea and all these miners um, got together and decided that they needed an umbrella organization for these local unions to belong to that would give them more bargaining power with the companies. And so they established the Western Federation of Miners in Butte in 1894. Um, the interesting thing about this is the Butte Miners Union became Local One of that uh, federation. And the first two presidents of the Western Federation of Miners were men from Butte, miners from Butte. And they were so radical and so volatile that the organization almost tore itself apart. So in their third annual meeting, they passed a rule that they couldn't elect anybody from Butte as president anymore. <laughs> so that ended Butte's domination of the Western Federation of Miners, at least in its leadership, um, which, you know, they would, they would get a tad bit of revenge on later, later on. In 1906, you have the Amalgamated Copper Company uh, taking over for 
the Anaconda Company, uh, the Copper King War is over, uh, Amalgamated is being led by John D. Ryan and Cornelius Con Kelly. Um, these individuals no longer felt like they needed to court labor, the workers. Um, Previously, when Clark and Heinze and Daly were scrapping with one another, it was important to have the workers on your side and the workers' union on your side. So there was a lot of support for the unions. There was a lot of support for the, wage, for the workers. Wages were fairly high in Butte compared to other mining communities in the West. Um, they were seeing the passage of some really progressive legislation in terms of eight-hour days for mine workers and smelter workers and things like that. So it was kind of the high point um, for early unionism in, in, uh, in Butte. Uh, that ended with Amalgamated. And in 1912, the company introduced the rustling card system. Now, essentially, the rustling card was something that you had to have signed off by the foreman, the mine foreman, saying that you were... A good worker and you weren't a radical and it was okay for you to work on the hill. If you didn't have a rustling card you didn't work. This was something that the Butte Miners Union didn't fight. Um, the leadership didn't. The rank-and-file members were extremely upset about this rustling card system but the mine, the, 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 the leadership of the union were okay with it. So it created a rift within the Miners Union between the progressives and the conservatives and set up um, it set into motion the events that are we're about to uh, talk about. Um, so by 1914, uh, as I said, there's a pretty good divide between the membership and the leadership of the union. And during the Miners' Day Parade on June 13, 1914, a, uh, the majority of the Butte miners boycotted the parade. A few of the conservatives participated in it, and they were doing their parade like they typically do. Um, lots of heckling going on in the streets, and the next thing you know, the progressives attacked the Miners' Day uh, Union parade and broke it up. And that was so much fun that they decided that they were going to go to their union hall and break into it and steal the union records. So they did that, um, and had a good time breaking up the union hall and stealing the uh, union records and destroying them. Uh, Governor Stewart... Uh, who was uh, head of Montana at that time, traveled to Butte the following day to see how volatile the situation was and whether or not there was going to be a need for troops in Butte. Um, by then it seemed fairly peaceful, so he thought the situation would be okay. It would cool down naturally and they would be able to move forward with, with whatever situation unfolded um, after that. Uh, the miners were pretty upset with the old guard of the union, so they voted to establish a new union, the Metal, uh, the Butte Mine Workers Union. And um, with an overwhelming vote, they endorsed that 6,348 for 243 against. A gentleman by the name of Michael Mucky McDonald was elected president, and um, it didn't claim any affiliation with the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, or the Industrial Workers of the World. They wanted to be independent of those two organizations, and they wanted to focus on issues that the old miners' union did not. The old miners' union was basically interested in maintaining the wage scale for the workers. The new union wanted to concentrate on the wage scale, but they also wanted to concentrate on safety issues within the mines themselves and benefits for the miners that were working there and who were getting injured on a daily basis in some instances. So they wanted to expand the work that the union was doing on behalf of uh, the workers. 
The conservative elements within the Butte Miners Union claimed that this new union was being controlled by outside forces that had little or no experience in the mines. And that, of course, the primary um, culprit for this was the industrial workers of the world. Charles Moyer, who was president of the Western Federation of Miners at the time, agreed with the company press that this was the main issue. So he traveled to Butte in order to attempt to get his number one local back in line. On June 23rd, he called a meeting at the Union Hall. Uh, and uh, during that meeting, there were more people outside than they were inside. But interestingly enough, the gunfight broke out on the inside of the building. So back in the day, it wasn't uncommon for uh, union workers to show up at their union, union meeting packing a heater. And so somebody pulled a gun. There was gunfire within the confines of the union hall. People scattered. Moyer um, slipped out of the back. And some intrepid individuals decided that this was a good time to carry it just one step further. So they went over to the West Stewart mine, borrowed some dynamite, and spent the next several hours blowing up their union hall, which you can only do in Butte. Um, Governor Stewart is getting messages from some of the businesses in that area that the situation is extremely volatile and he needs to seriously consider sending in the troops to cool it down. Um, Stewart's hesitant to do so. He puts the National Guard on alert, then he pulls them off of alert. By the first week in August, the new union had 5,000 members, um, but they weren't being recognized by the company as the official representatives of the miners. Uh, Compounding the situation that was going on in Butte, this is 1914, the war in Europe had just started, and so that you would think that there would be this immediate demand for copper. Well, there wasn't. It, at first, when the war broke out, it flattened the prices of copper, and the company, the amalgamated company, uh, was forced to lay off 2,000 miners. So not only do you have a strike situation going on in Butte, but you have 2,000 miners who are out of work as well. And so extremely extremely volatile. Now everybody wanted to do their best to maintain the peace and the, the new union, the Butte Mine Workers Union, um, felt that way as well. Uh, they actually had a meeting and from that meeting they crafted an invitation and sent it to Governor Stewart, invited him to come to Butte and talk to them about the issues that they had and what they could do to make sure that Butte stayed peaceful and there was no need for um, the National Guard to arrive to, to keep the peace on the streets. And although initially open to this discussion and going over there and speaking to them, Governor Stewart ended up at the last minute canceling his plans to go over and visit. It probably would have helped if he had, um, but he was also, like I said, getting messages from a number of businesses in the city saying that he needed to do something immediately to, to, uh, to combat the lawlessness that was going on there. Those are probably too small to even read, but trust me. Um, one of these letters was uh, from Charles Sheen, who was a real estate broker in Butte, and he assured the governor that in no time during his 23 years as a resident in the mining city had he ever felt strongly for the need to have assistance from troops as he did at this point. He wrote, there are a great number of IWWs here and a great many foreigners from Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece who will not hesitate to fight the militia. So in his opinion, the best thing that he could have done was to actually send 
federal troops, regular troops, as opposed to militia, because they would be able to hold the line against the strikers better than, than the, the local National Guard. Mayor Duncan, who we heard um, Jeff Johnson speak about uh, during lunch, was the mayor at this time. He's a socialist, so he was typically on the side of the... Uh, of the unions. Uh, he wrote Governor Stewart as well, stating, in my opinion, the ACM company, if it's not backing the New York new organization, is willing to at least see the power of organized labor here weakened and destroyed. So essentially the company is sitting on the fence at this point. They're not taking the side of the new union, they're not taking the side of the old union, they're just watching. And the one thing that you're not seeing is correspondence from the leadership of the Anaconda Company coming into Governor Stewart's office. You see a lot of other correspondents from around the state and from Butte talking about the situation there. But you don't see anything written down on paper from the company saying, hey, we have a problem here. They're strangely quiet. On August 30, uh, persons of uh, unknown description di dynamited an employment shack outside the ACM's Parrot Mine. The employment shack is where you picked up your rustling card in order to be able to go to work. That evening, Governor Stewart decided that, um, well, actually, that evening, Governor Stewart received a letter from Sheriff Jim Driscoll of Silver Bowl County saying that, quote, it will be impossible for me to cope with the situation any longer and request that you send the regular troops as quick as possible. As such, Governor Stewart act, uh, actively mobilized the National Guard, and the next day he received the letter, interestingly enough, from W.J. Burns, who uh, ran the International Detective Agency, and this is one of the things that the uh, new union was concerned about, was the infiltration by the, of the old union by the, by the company. And Burns is offering to do just that for the governor for the un new union. You let me know if you need uh, operatives to go in there and infiltrate the new union. We'll get it done for you, and we'll get all the evidence that you need. It's kind of like, trust me when I tell you what that says on the document. So Stewart issued his proclamation for... Uh, Martial law on September 1 and placed command of the, uh, command of the situation uh, under the command of Major Dan, uh, Dan Donahue. Donahue. Uh, the same day Donahue issued his own proclamation, um, Silver Bowl County would be placed under military authority. All places that sold intoxicating liquors were closed and would remain closed until further notice. It banned the publication of newspapers, pamphlets, or handbills that influenced public opinion against the U.S the state of Montana, the officers of said civil or military authority, and also instituted a curfew. Also banned all assemblages in the streets or highways, assemblages in other locations were allowed with the permission of the commanding officer. So the clamp had come down on Butte to relieve the situation. But not all was well with the arrival of the National Guard. Governor Stewart received a telegram from Maria Monroe of Shoto County who wrote Governor Stewart that her son Silas, 19, and Wallace, 18, had enlisted and were taken away, however, without written permission from their parents. So she wrote, quote, for pity's sake, have them excused and sent home immediately. <laughs> Faced with the potential wrath of Mother Monroe, the National Guard and Governor Stewart acquiesced to her request and the two boys were shipped home so they didn't have to stand the duty in Butte. Um, so obviously there was more concern for Mother Monroe than there was the situation in Butte and maintaining order there. Um, with the National Guard settled in, Butte settled down, and, and as Butte settled down, events began to unfold in other places. 
um, primarily the harvest fields of the Dakotas and along the Montana High Line. They would add some credence to the claims that maybe the IWW was behind the situation that was going on in Butte. And this is where we get to part two, the blanket stiff. These are the guys that John's convict laborers put out of work. These individuals were an itinerant workforce, mostly single, mostly white, native born, and they worked from job to job. They would work the harvest fields and the grain belt and up through the Dakotas, and then they would go to the mines or they would go to the timber camps in western Montana or they would go out to the canneries on the coast. They never settled down. They were constantly on the move. You can see this batch of bedrolls that worked well. Uh, on the, the one side, they essentially packed their bedrolls from, um, from place to place. Uh, they were referred to as blanket stiffs, bindle stiffs, tramps, vagrants, uh, you pretty much name it. And I love the poem, he built the road. With others of his class, he built the road. Now over it, many a weary mile, he packs his load, chasing a job, spurned by hunger's goad. He walks and walks and walks and walks and wonders why the hell he built the road. <laughs> so you're almost better off being imprisoned on the road crew because you're getting three squares and a place to sleep. <coughs> the IWW had had some success organizing some of these individuals into small locals. Um, and uh, what they had decided was that there was going to be a need for an umbrella organization to take them all in at some point. However, before that could occur, a group of them in the Dakotas decided that they needed to do something to show solidarity to their fellow union workers in Butte, Montana. So they stole a train. And they cut across the Dakotas and into the High Line of Montana, and their goal was to ride the train to Butte or they were going to march shoulder to shoulder with the Butte miners and show the bosses exactly who was the boss in the situation. This scared the hell out of everybody. Um, the press along the High Line began informing the public of this perceived invasion of IWW malcontents along the, along, uh, along the High Line of Montana. Uh, newspaper accounts differed on the exact numbers, but they would state anywhere from 100 to 1,500 invading IWWs were headed to the mining city on, on a stolen train. Uh, the Great Falls Tribune ran the headline, Hordes of IWW headed this way, four men killed, although information remained spotty. The newspaper article claimed that this army of IWW had stopped in North Dakota committing robberies and destroying threshing machines as well as stealing uh, guns and ammunition along the way. Uh, the news accounts from the Glasgow Courier reported that these Dakota harvest hands terrorized citizens in towns of western Dakota and eastern Montana. So you can see the press really ratcheting up the tension of this situation as it unfolded. On October 3rd, 1914, the train arrived in Culbertson, Montana, where it was met, according to the newspaper, by the entire male population armed to the teeth and lining both sides of the railroad tracks. And they simply said, keep going. And so the train continued west. They met the same treatment at Poplar. However, eight miles up the line, the train stopped at Little Chelsea, Montana, where four gunmen tried to break into a tool shed that was, um, belonged to the Great Northern Railway. As I said, this is a union meeting, or I shouldn't say a union meeting, but a union gathering of sorts, and somebody always brings a gun to a union meeting of sorts um, at this time. 
and a gunfight broke out as several of the IWW leaders on the train start, uh, tried to halt the robbery. Uh, a railroad civil engineer named Arthur J. Giant Valley of St. Paul, Minnesota was killed when he stepped from the mess tent, along with one gunman and one member of the IWW. The interesting thing about this is that how the hell are you going to arrest this many people? So word went out to Glasgow that they needed to have every pair of handcuffs they had in their possession that wasn't being used and to please ship them to Chelsea. Um, at the same time, the sheriff came, uh, the sheriff of Sheridan County came through the area and he's looking for deputies. So in Poplar, when they pushed the train through that, they were having the Indian fair there. And according to the paper, there were all these folks dressed in their full garb and so forth for the Indian fair. The sheriff shows up and deputizes a whole bunch of them, and they ride to Chelsea to arrest these IWW. And the newspapers had a great time reporting on this fact of this Native American horde coming over the hill and down into Chelsea, and all these wobblies immediately going, whoa, I quit. So they ended up arresting um, about 14 people. Uh, they didn't know exactly who had committed the murders or who had started the shooting. Uh, they kept 14. There were about 100 individuals on the, uh, on the train. So it wasn't an army of 1,500 by any means. The majority of them weren't even members of the industrial workers of the world. They weren't car-carrying members of the IWW. But the situation had, been, uh, had become extremely uh, tense. The Great Falls Tribune reported that on October 6th, the residents of Glasgow woke up, at, uh, woke up to see the effigy of an IWW swinging from a telegraph pole in a prominent thoroughfare and surmounted by a real skull of ghastly appearance. So the message was pretty clear. The IWW needed to clear out. And this is how we end up with invasion interruptus. Um, how are you going to get rid of all of these stranded IWW? Only a portion of them were arrested and taken to Plentywood um, uh, to try to sort out the situation there with the gunfight. So what do you do with the rest of them? Well, while they're trying to figure that out, the rest of Montana is trying to figure out what they're going to do with all these hordes of IWW that are headed their way. The Butte miner proudly boasted that any of those IWWs that made it to the mining city weren't going to be put in the local jail. They were going to be put in the closest deserted mine shaft where they could just cool their heels until they decided to let them out. <coughs> um, Eastern Montana took its own unique approach to the situation. Uh, the communities there decided that they needed to move these men out. Ooh, wow, okay, I'll hurry. Um, to move these men out. So what they did was they began gathering them up, loading them on refrigerated cars, with enough food and water to get them to the coast and then locking the door so they couldn't get out. And the train would head for the coast. And that's how they dispersed this group of uh, unwanted IWWs. Um, the situation was bad enough that Governor uh, Stewart did contact President Wilson and asked if they could garrison federal troops in Missoula, Montana for the winter just to make sure that the, that the, uh, the situation was firmly under control. County law enforcement across eastern Montana assured the governor that they were doing their best to keep the IWW out. Um, from Sheridan County, Hill County, Valley County, and Custer County, the telegrams all came in 100% behind Governor Stewart and their desire to make sure that uh, they in fact would, would uh, 
would keep the IWW, the fearsome wobbly, out. Governor Stewart list, lifted the martial law uh, in Butte on November 12, 1914. Um, things had become peaceful enough that uh, the troops could leave. As a result of the events in Butte and the warfare between the Butte Mine uh, Workers Union, the Butte Miners Union, the Western Federation of Miners, and the Industrial Workers of the World, the Anaconda Company was able to break um, the closed shop that had been in existence in, in, in Butte since essentially 1878. So there would be no more union representation in Butte um, for the miners. And in large part because that's what happens when you blow up your, your own uh, union hall. Um, the aftermath of the situation is pretty interesting. Um, the rogues gallery here, President King Mucky McDonald, as he was called, um, was sentenced to three years in prison and released in 1916. He left the state and the newspaper later reported that uh, he was denied naturalization um, to become a citizen of the state. They were pretty happy about that. Joe Bradley, uh, the individual in the center on the top, was considered the brains of the new union, was sentenced to five years and unfortunately died in prison on August 29, 1916 of cancer. Joe Shannon on the, which would be your far right, uh, was acquitted and returned to Butte uh, and he remained an active participant in um, the labor unrest in Butte and would play a, 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 a hand in the creation of the Metal Mine Workers Union in 1917 that formed three years later. As Jeff mentioned earlier, uh, Mayor Lewis Duncan was removed from office for his inability to maintain order in, uh, in Butte. For the Harvest Wobblies, um, Albert Giant Valley's, uh, there was a coroner's inquest in Plannywood to determine the persons, the identity of the persons who were responsible for his murder. Unfortunately, they were unable to do so, and everybody that they had taken into custody was released. So his murder was never, was never solved. As for the agricultural workers themselves, um, the following year, April 15, 1915, they met in Kansas City, Missouri, and they created the Agricultural Workers Organization, uh, number 400 of the industrial workers of the world. And their goal was to organize wheat, the wheat harvest from northern Texas to southern Manitoba into one great big union. Uh, their demands were going to be pretty simple. They wanted freedom from illegal restraint. They wanted a 10-hour day as opposed to what they had now, which they called, yes, they worked an eight-hour day. They worked eight hours in the morning and eight hours in the afternoon. Uh, they wanted a standard wage of $4 for the harvest season, and hopefully they were looking for free transportation when they took employment, um, when they took employment in places outside of their, their present location. Little did folks know that the creation of this organization and the turmoil that was created in Butte in 1914 would hang around and boil over three years later in 1917, not only in Butte, but across the West and across the country as we entered World War I. <laughs> you don't want to make Roberta mad. Get up here, John. <laughs>